0: Hey y'all welcome back it's stories from the influencer economy this is Ryan Williams your host coming at you live from my Los Angeles podcast studio in West LA wanted to announce that I have a new course before jumping into the episode with Paul Jarvis he's a great guest today Um, but yeah my course is all about how to pitch influential people how to reach gatekeepers and how to get your foot in the door with new clients it's all about telling your authentic story in a real way through an email pitch I want to help you do this, and I'm taking a risk here. I'm doing something a little different. It's exclusive for my podcast audience. This is a Name Your Price course, a Name Your Price course, meaning that it's actually valued at $497. However, I want to give it to you at whatever price you want. So if you want to take the course, email me. It's ryan at pitchmake.com. That's ryan at pitchmake.com. That's pitchmake, M-A-K-E. And I want you to pitch yourself better authentically through cold emails and social media. I'm thrilled because this is all my hard work I've put in through the years to cold pitch through email, influential leaders, gatekeepers, and new clients. I've used this to my own perfection to reach people like Seth Godin for my podcast, YouTubers like Francesca Ramsey, authors like Near Ale. I've gained clients through cold email pitches, cold email tweets, and this is exclusive to my email list. So I'm not going public with this yet. You'll be uh, exclusively invited to this if you want to hit me up, ryan at pitchmake.com. And I'd love to collaborate with you. We'll be working directly with me. I'll have email templates that we'll edit together. We'll find out and identify who your influencers and gatekeepers are. And then in closing, you know, we'll have a call together to finish the job, to critique, give you confidence, get you through imposter syndrome because you deserve to reach the right people for your business at the right time. And that right time is now. And now we'll toss it to Paul Jarvis, my guest this week. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the podcast, really fired up. Welcome Paul Jarvis to the show. Welcome back to the show. Second time guest, friend of the podcast, Paul Jarvis. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for having me back. So Paul Jarvis, you're more like a Swiss army knife. You can do it all in the sense you have online courses, you've worked with athletes like Shaquille O'Neal on their websites, uh, Microsoft, Yahoo, Mercedes-Benz. You've done a lot of web design technology work. And you're the author of a new book that is a bestseller on Amazon, congrats on that. And the book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. Now why this book resonates with me is because I've worked with a lot of startup businesses with entrepreneurs that have been failures because they were in debt and they were always in debt to investors, venture capitalists, and they couldn't survive. So what is your motivation for the book?
1: Yeah, I think, so I've never really wanted to be like a, like a a leader or a guru or a, like that kind of, that kind of person. I always just feel like I'm the dude in the trenches doing the same work as the people who pay attention to the things that I do. And I'm just like, I'm just the guy who's doing the same thing as you. So let's 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 talk. Let's let's have a conversation. And for me, like, like I said, I'm not really that interested in like I actually. So the, the main point there is that I actually like the work. So I never wanted to or I still don't want to promote myself out of a job I like doing. Like, I don't want to stop doing things like design and writing because I I enjoy them. So I wouldn't want to become the manager if I grew my business. I wouldn't want to be, like, the manager of designers or writers because then I feel like I would just be jealous. Like, I'd promote myself out of the job I actually wanted to have. And (laughs) I feel like... It's it's so silly that the corporate world kind of works in that way where you do good work for something and it, as a reward, as a promotion, you get promoted into managing people doing that work. When I don't think everybody should be a manager, like right. I would be an I would be an awful manager. I can't manage anything. I can't delegate anything. I'm the worst. The book is really just that. Like I'm not even saying my way is the right way. I don't I don't know if there is a right way. I just think that my way is a different way than what everybody else is talking about. And I think it's worth considering because I wouldn't want people to be turned off of working for themselves or becoming entrepreneurs because they think, Oh, well, I'm not like this influencer or this business person or I Or I don't want to be like Elon Musk, who works 80 hours a day and sleeps on a couch in his office and is paranoid to ever go away because the last two times he went away, his rockets blew
0: up, and he doesn't understand the difference between (laughs) correlation and causation. And now Elon's been angry guy on Twitter, lashing out in the comments, talking to trolls, being fired up. You don't want to be that guy. Exactly, so, and then get in he, trouble with like the SCC and like yeah. board of directors. It's
1: just like this is a mess. <laughs> like I wouldn't want to run a business like his. It just seems like there's so much
0: responsibility. Seem I don't want ed- anybody to get mad at me for mean things I tweet. We, he, he, I yeah, to- right. <laughs> you want to keep your mean tweets <laughs> to yourself and not a global audience. <laughs> exactly. Elon also doesn't seem like he's very well adjusted as a person. He's not happy. He's overly driven. He drives his employees to immense riches, but also. To incredible stress and pressure in no way is he a role model for my business in any way right
1: yeah like yeah. he
0: is just so solely
1: focused and driven and i mean that works for him i guess but i it wouldn't work for me like i would be so stressed out and anxious and burnt out all the time like if i was <laughs> if i had his life but those are the like those are the idols of the entrepreneurial world and it's just like They don't have to be, or it just, it doesn't have to just be people like that.
0: Right. I totally agree. I mean, I used to work at companies where people would emulate Steve jobs. Steve jobs was a jerk, totally treated people like crap and was mean. Uh, can I, just, just a really difficult, difficult creative genius. And that's not who you want to be. Totally. but He went off on rants and rampages all the time on his employees. I'm sure he was a horrible boss. That's a great segue, Paul. Uh, So how are you not like Steve Jobs? What gives you purpose right now?
1: Yeah, it's so teaching courses, writing books, hosting podcasts, and developing software. Those are kind I have one or two I have two courses two software products two podcasts for some reason I have two of everything I feel like I'm Noah and I'm building an arc of products yeah. or something <laughs> but yeah those are the things that I like doing and I I definitely like to have a simple business but I also understand that I kind of get bored really easily so if I was just doing one thing then I would get super bored and I probably wouldn't want to do it anymore. So I kind of focus on one thing at a time and keep it different. So some days I could be doing a bunch of podcasts. Some days I could be doing like software development. Some days I could be like writing courses or working with students for my existing courses. So I kind of like that it changes all the time, but it's, it's really manageable because I'm not trying to get all things to happen all at once and work on all things at the same time. That as well I think would be super stressful.
0: So how long have you been operating under the premise of being a small company of one versus growing your success and scaling and having employees? How long have you been practicing what you uh, preach here in the book?
1: Yeah, it's funny. So I've kind of run my business this way for about 20 years, but it wasn't for the first half. I wasn't really conscious of me running, having like a a kind of a, a model for running a business in this way. I just Like, honestly, I didn't want to hire anybody because I don't want to be responsible (laughs) for other people and I don't want to manage other people. So I just kind of always kept my business small. And then I guess I started to think about it more and I thought like, hey, this whole like questioning growth thing instead of just assuming it's good seems actually kind of viable and not just for myself, but for other people. And for the longest time, I was just like, I'm just some business weirdo who doesn't really like growth. Um... And so I just kind of went about my, my business. But since I'm a writer, I wrote an article for my mailing list. This is probably like three, three and a half years ago. And the article was called something like, I don't care about growth. And I was just like, I'm just going to shoot, just like when I wrote about uh, when I wrote about finding your rat people. I was just like, I'm just going to write an article, send it out to my mailing list. People might get it. They might not. Who knows? So I sent out this article about kind of the framework for the book. I don't really care about growth. And I usually get a couple hundred replies to my newsletter—just people like, "Hey, great work," or hey, "I hate you," or whatever. They just reply. And for this article about questioning growth, I got like twelve hundred or thirteen hundred replies. Like, it just, it just like wow. blew my inbox out. It doesn't. It doesn't usually happen. Like, but I just, I just started noticing. Like, everybody, everybody that replied was like. Hey, I thought I was the only person who didn't want to grow a massive company. I was I thought I was the only business owner who didn't want to have like 100,000 employees. And I was like there's something here. Like there's a like why is why is nobody talking about this cuz it seems like there is an underserved um section of the entrepreneurial world who kind of feels this way. Like why isn't why is nobody talking about it? And I was like I guess, like, I slowly raise my hand, I'm like, I guess I will be the one
0: to talk. That could be (laughs) me. That could be me. guess I am the person who's going to talk about it. Well, I'm glad it's you. And let's talk about Silicon Valley with the boom and bust mentality. What do you think about startups that just raise a bunch of outside money and artificially increase their growth without necessarily even having a sustainable business model? It's like you got to go public if you're a startup or you have to get acquired if you're a startup or you'll go out of business. You, so three options are you go out of business, you go public, or you get acquired. And you gotta be a unicorn, or there's nothing there's no point to you even existing, however depressing that sounds.
1: Yeah, they gotta unicorn it up.
0: Right. Hit a billion hit a billion dollars a year.
1: Otherwise it doesn't make sense. And I think Kaufman Foundation found that like eighty-six percent of companies with long-term success don't take VC money. Even I was listening to a podcast um, with the girl boss, the nasty gal, um, Sophia Amorosa. Yes. And she was talking about Hash, super, super, smart. I love listening to her.
0: She's, yeah, she ended up failing though. I feel like her company, Nasty Gal, went out of business maybe just a couple years ago.
1: Yeah, but she went out of business <laughs> because she took funding. A, a wildly profitable business took money, took a valuation that was so inflated that no next round of investors would put money in because they didn't want to value the company at that high of a number. So she took a profitable business and, and and made it not work just because of
0: investors. And I mean, she's doing things different now. She's so ridiculously intelligent, one of my favorite business people. Oh, that's so fascinating. I didn't realize that she had external investment pressure, which is why she went belly up.
1: Yeah, her her series A was valued the business at something like 320 million dollars at the time they were doing 24 million dollars a year. And for any other investor to come in, they would basically have to take that valuation, otherwise the first round of investors would be pissed off. And it's like, "Oh no." <laughs> like she t- and they they had they projected and projections are another thing that are so completely messed up but they projected that they would go from 24 20 something million dollars to 120 something million dollars
0: projections are numbers that you make up to impress people with money that you want to take their money to help build your company in the end right Right. Exactly, they're artificial targets pulled out of the sky. Right, and I think they only hit
1: something like sixty million, and only they wow. only hit something like sixty million dollars. Right. but then that's a failure because they didn't hit their they were fifty percent lower than their than that artificial <laughs> number that they pulled out of the sky. Yeah, I'm like how is this real life? Like how is this how business works? Which is why in the book I just talk about like different ways to do it and different ways to like go slower to to go organically to pay attention to profit now versus projected profit in the future which is which is a risk like it's a any projection you have any goal you have any numbers you think you're going to hit it's a guess and it's a risk that you're going to hit those and it's really difficult to build a business just off of those projections or 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 profit at volume where profit only happens if you reach a certain volume, because you know, there's so many there's so many moving parts in any business that it, it's hard to know. It's just hard to know those things.
0: So you're saying profit right now, focus on the immediacy of gaining profit and don't think about projected growth in the end. What have you done with your business that takes this attitude? Yeah, I mean, I don't... So, one, I never spend more than I'm making,
1: so I would never spend... I would never have, like, the ridiculous... I think Pets.com and I, are probably the best example, uh, and, and younger people probably don't even know who Pets.com is. No, com. have no idea. But it like they were spending i think they spent a million bucks on a super bowl ad they were selling pet food at at less than they were paying for it so that they had like negative <laughs> margins but they were hoping that they would get enough of the market share that they could slowly raise the prices where nobody would notice and and start to make money. And they were valued at like a gazillion dollars as well, because they were one of the first like internet startups. And it's just like it's really hard to focus on profit and focus on growth at the same time. Because a lot of times you have to forsake profit for growth. And so in my own business and in, in the book, I, I really talk a lot about well, what can you do to be profitable now? Or what can you do to become profitable? as quickly as possible because profitable businesses are durable. Like businesses that are making enough money to survive and pay all their employees don't really go out of business because why would they go out of business if they're making enough money to, to, keep, to keep everything running and humming and, and everybody's getting paid and everybody's happy. It's only when we start to focus on projections and like, oh, well, maybe we'll, we'll take a loss for the next year
0: and, and I hope we hit some number then it's scary then it then becomes really difficult what are some ways for us as a community of listeners here that we can focus on profit from day one right now immediately and apply this principle to uh, our own daily jobs yeah i think one
1: of the first things is 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 is, did, is figuring out how you can be profitable at the smallest scale possible like figuring out how you can do things where you're making money Without scale, because it's easier to scale afterwards. It's just like when I'm building, when I'm building, say, an online course or a software product, I'm going to try to, I, like, I'm going to spend as little money as possible to get these things off off the ground to see if they work, because it's always a guess. What do you mean by uh, it's always a guess? Like. I don't know if it's going to succeed. Like, I have definitely some successes under my belt, but that's not—that's no indication of the future. I have an audience, but that's no indication that they'll buy something. Right. So it's until it's out in the market, it's a guess. So what can you do to launch things as quickly as possible?
0: Because as soon as something's in the market, you're taking away most of the guesses. So I'm someone that's a a visionary and uh, an achiever. Like I, I take all these personality tests that I like to do things regularly, Saturdays, Sundays, Monday nights, whenever, like across the board. So how does being a workaholic play into all of your research for the book? And what's your opinion on people that work really hard, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, like Elon Musk, you know, proclaims he does? Yeah, it's it's
1: detrimental. Like, I mean, I take a pretty long-term view of business. Like, I've been at this longer than most people. I've worked for myself for 20 years, so... I, I, and I've been like I've been there as well, and I've seen the the negative effects it's had on me. And I just think that I think that especially a lot of people are like oh you have to hustle in the beginning, you got to be like all in in the beginning and work like sixteen hours a day and all of that. And I mean you have to do what you have to do to to make things work and to make a living, sure. But the problem I have with it is that. It's setting yourself up for for bad and detrimental habits in your life. So if you think that your business can only run if you put in 80 to 100 hours a week, you're never going to stop doing that because you're setting yourself up to always do that. And then your business can only run if you always do that. Right. And I think that it, it just – like, yeah, it, it creates these – these like really detrimental habits. And I think that, I think there's a difference between working hard and hustling. I think that, that hustling means that you're like always on or you're always working or you're always trying to get ahead by any means necessary. And I think if you're just working, working well, then you're, you're definitely focused and driven on the work you're doing now, but you can also, take a break or you can also work maybe 30, 40 hours a week and still see how far you can get and not beat yourself up if you didn't. Like you don't get a badge of honor for working 80 hours a week. Nobody's going to stand there and like give you a little medal <laughs> because you forsook, you forsaken, forsook, like the worst author. I don't even know words, but like nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna give you uh, anything because you you put your family and your health on the back burner just to get things working. Like right. it just doesn't work like that. And it's not sustainable. Right. Like it's just it's it's wholly unsustainable to 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 do that much work. But I think on on the opposite end, if you do find a way to to create some kind of balance to work enough to take care of yourself, because it's really hard to if you're not taking care of yourself and your body and your mind, it's really hard to do good work. Like how do you do your best work if you always feel like crap? Right. I don't I don't actually I don't have an answer to that. So I think that if we take more of a, like, holistic view of it, and I'm not really much of a hippie, but I do think that um, thinking about things in terms of that, in terms of, like, your whole self makes a lot of sense. Because then you can't, like, I put in two decades and I still, like, I'm not burnt out. (laughs) Right. I I work really hard, but then I also stop working at, at a certain point because I know that there's diminishing returns.
0: One thing you do that I think all companies and brands and organizations can learn from is you write this consistent email newsletter and you're always teaching people something new about themselves or their business or their work. So how do you, as Paul Jarvis, you know, the author of Company of One, teach others and why is it important to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, my view has always been that retention's much more important, easier and faster than acquisition. So I would rather, for my own business, keep serving a, a, a small group of people who I can get to know, who get to know and trust me and that the solutions that I offer them, and just really build and tailor things specifically for them, as opposed to just always needing more people to, to make things work like it's just harder and it i think it costs like 5 to 8% more to get a new customer than to keep an old customer and it's like i don't want to have to do 5 to 8 times more work or spend 5 to 8 times more to keep getting new customers okay. like i would rather have a, a small group of customers who i serve over and over again with things than to just have to continually like get people into the funnel and like really pitch new people that sounds very familiar They're either going to churn out or relent and buy the thing. Like, I don't want to run a business like that. And I mean, I I just like doing things in a way where, like, most of the time when somebody buys something from me, like, I recognize their name because more than half the people that buy one thing from me buy a bunch of things from me.
0: And how you layer that education piece, like giving stuff out for free, making people smarter with your email newsletter or any sort of video content podcasting that you create that you're putting sweat equity in to help people learn better. Like for me, I make videos, I give talks that are on YouTube, I have a podcast, I want to make people smarter. So how do you do that? How do you do that in your business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've written a weekly newsletter for six years and I've never missed a week other than I take uh, November and December off because nobody pays attention then anyways. But other than those, other than the scheduled breaks, I've never missed a Sunday, yeah, it's called the Sunday Dispatches. So I've never missed a Sunday email in six years. hmm. And most of them aren't pitches. Most of them I have nothing to sell in them. A couple times a year I do. But I just establish like a a regular cadence of communication with them. And the email doesn't come from no reply at Paul Jarvis's thing. It comes from my personal inbox. And if they reply, it goes to my personal inbox. It's just like any automation sequence I have. Yeah, it's an automation sequence. But if they have a question or a concern or want to know if it's right for them, they hit reply. It goes to me. Most of the time I tell people not to buy my things. if they have a question, they're typically on the fence or not a good fit anyways. Right. So I just think that having a re- like it's so easy to have a regular
0: dialogue. So it sounds like you're creating habits for people to return back knowing you're creating consistent uh, content or really having a dialogue. I, I hate the word content. Um, so then what do you teach? like what's your angle, what's your edge? How can we learn about our branding from this conversation?
1: Yeah, I, I like to teach people to, to have critical thought and analysis. And I feel like that's my audience. Like I, I couldn't say like, oh, my audience is like 35 to 48 year old women making 70 to 80,000. I, I, I don't know any of that. I don't even care <laughs> about right. any of that. But I think that the audience that I fostered is an audience, one that I really want to have. Like I'm not interested in having an audience of people who aren't interested in critical thought and self-examination because that's really who I am. So I feel like I can relate to those people. So I want to teach those people the things that I do to be better at those things. So I'm always trying to figure out like, yeah, I know certain things I definitely want to write about and I'm interested in writing about, but I always think about like, if I was just writing for me, I would write in a journal, nobody would ever see it. Right. But because I write a newsletter, it's for other people And yeah, I have a lot of personal stories and a lot of things that I want to talk about. But I'm always in the back of my mind thinking, like, what's the value here for like the type of person that I want to engage with this content? Like, what's the takeaway for them? And it doesn't have to be like a bulleted list of how to things. It can be like. Here's some things that you should think about, and like I, maybe I don't even know the answer to this, and that's okay. But maybe there is no answer because the answer is different for everybody, right. and that's kind of the that's kind of the way that my content leans,
0: and is kind of the my shtick. So critical thought, <laughs> I, guess. I mean, So I like that critical thought, critical thinking, making people understand themes, ideas, concepts that are counterintuitive to help them not scale, not even grow, not even hack their business, but to be a company of one. And that's what I really respect about your newsletter. I also like that you're not some guru that talks about, you need to pay me a lot of money so you can make money. Like you're not launching a course to help people make money through launching courses, right? That is so trite and contrived and completely bogus. Like you can't make money by watching a bunch of videos. And I feel bad, you know, for people that buy these courses that get led astray by these hucksters, these con artists that, that sell you dreams and visions and hopes and freedoms that never fulfill them because the people are con artists that are just trying to make a buck and and you're not that
1: well i also think i would be wary of any industry that can only that only has a possibility of making money by teaching others how to make money in that industry so like a lot of those self-help like make a course are like make a course to teach other people how to make a course and make my it's just so recursive and derivative it's like it's like drop shipping. There are no drop shippers that really make money in the world, but the only people that make money in the drop shipping industry are people that teach other people how to do drop shipping. <laughs> right. And then their only option then is to teach courses to other people on how to make courses. It's just like it's it's difficult. And I mean, like that's why I think there's a lot of like false idols and false profits in this business, because there's a lot of people who only know like There's so much nuance to wisdom and to experience that I think a lot of people just lack. And not because they're dumb, but just because they they haven't done the thing or they they haven't been with the thing or like done that for so long. They've maybe read like, oh, I've read like four articles on self-help on Medium. Like I can teach a course on self-help. And it's like it it doesn't work that way. You've maybe got a tiny bit of knowledge, but you have almost zero wisdom. And I don't think a lot of people as well think about the effects that their advice have on other people. This is something that I that I think about every single day. It makes me a little neurotic. But I always think about, like, if somebody took this advice that I'm giving them in this article or in this book or in whatever, like, what's what could happen? Or what's the worst that could happen? And sometimes it's like, hmm, this, this could not go well. I'm not going to write about this. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to do this. And sometimes it's like, hmm. How could critical thinking for yourself go wrong? Yeah, maybe maybe that's my advice for this. And I mean, it <laughs> feels a bit more like a like a soft like a soft lob of a pitch for for my work. Like I'm never gonna tell somebody to buy my thing, but I'm gonna tell people like if these things line up for you, like if you're a person that does this, or if you're a business that does this, 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 and this, then maybe this thing might make sense for you. But that also builds, like, it is a soft pitch. Like, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to get, like, the the massive sales numbers. But I'm also building trust with my audience because they know I'm not going to, like, sell them a bunch of horse crap about something.
0: In the book, you talk a lot about the customer and how it's always about the end game for the customer, the person who's paying you. And what do you do to treat your customers well? Like, how do you articulate that vision in your work where the customer is always first?
1: Yeah yeah, I'm trying to like i I would rather focus like like we talked about, I'd rather focus on the people who are already paying attention. And I find that if I do that and I make them happy and I serve them well for for money, of course, it's a business that one, they're gonna they're gonna keep coming back and, and two, they're gonna tell other people. And if I can like if I can make people so happy with the things I do that they tell other people, Then guess what? They become my sales force, and guess what? I probably I'm not paying them a salary to do that. They're doing that because they want to do that. And I also think that that's much more powerful of a thing. Like if I saw a promotion from somebody I know is uh, an affiliate marketer, then I'm just going to be like, "They're just getting paid to do it, right?" And there's nothing wrong with that. I know a bunch of people that do that. But if I hear from somebody like hey, I read this guy's book and really, really liked it. Like, I'm not getting paid to say this. I just, like, I bought the book. I read it myself and I really like it. Then that's much more powerful. Like, that's a more powerful sale. Like, that's trust by proxy. Mm -hmm. So the person is going to trust me because they trust the person telling them to check me out. Right. And that to me is just, that to me is so huge. And that to me builds those relationships that last and endure over time that build profitable, durable businesses, which is pretty much what we're talking about here.
0: I like the phrasing of getting people that are already listening to you to keep listening, retaining them, focusing on that core group, those collaborators, as I call them, and don't try to pay a bunch of money to acquire new customers. Make your current customers delighted, happy, and satisfied with your work. Yeah,
1: and that to me works really well because it shows that I am paying attention to the people who are paying attention to me, and they're in turn, like it's just a, it's just a win-win. Like they know that they're going to get one, and I think trust uh, trust happens on many levels. Like one, the trust happens because we have a, a continued a continued dialogue with each other, because I share once a week on my newsletter. Two, I, I trust has to be built in before you start building a product. Like you need to. You need to come to terms with the fact that if you're going to build trust from somebody after they've made a purchase, then that product has to be good. That product has to be valuable. That product has to be tested. That product has to give them something of benefit. That, like, I want somebody to be just as happy after they buy something as as they were excited to buy the thing before. Because everybody gets that like rush of adrenaline before they click buy on any online shopping. Right. But I want them to feel. Ha- I want them to feel like okay, I made a good decision. Like I, I worked hard to make this money and I feel good that I spent it on Paul or on, on whatever the product is. And that to me just builds the, that trust that we're talking about, that, that like relationship, that event, that evangelism that we're talking about.
0: Well, Paul, thank you again for coming on killer interview as always the two time guests. Uh, you know, you've been here twice, so we always welcome you back where can we find you online and everywhere else on the internet and the interwebs to help support this project?
1: Yeah, so the book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. It's on Amazon in physical, digital, and audio form. It's in most local bookstores. Luckily with this, it's a traditionally published book, so it has distribution. So anywhere you get books, you should be able to find it. And my newsletter, Sunday Dispatches, which we talked about, is available on my website. If you just Google Paul Jarvis, you'll find it. Nobody remembers the URL. It's P-J-R-V-S, but just Google Paul Jarvis, you'll find me.
0: All right, Paul, thanks so much for coming on. See you soon. Heck yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much for listening to that Paul Jarvis interview company of one is his book it is on amazon and i'm getting out of here right now but make sure if you're listening on itunes please subscribe and leave a review listening on spotify do the same anywhere you get your podcasts reviews and subscriptions really help and all the archives are on Mm influencereconomy.com